everyone has a voice, Catherine. The only problem is that some people's voices are very silent. I feel like um, sometimes I want to help amplify those voices. I'm glad that I'm doing that on a sporting board. It often frustrates me when we have conferences in sport talking about increasing gender equality in, in the sports industry. And often it's a room full of mostly women talking about it. Well, what we really need is men in the industry believing in gender equality and believing we need more women in the industry to really make a difference. This is Medals and More, the podcast getting you behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. I'm Catherine Granger and in this episode we mark International Women's Day, celebrating women's achievements as well as focusing on equality in British sport. And we speak to two special guests who play a key role behind the scenes, changing mindsets and agendas. Sally Bolton is the new Chief Exec of Wimbledon, officially of course the All England Club and a member of the UK Sport Board. But my first guest is Anne Wafula-Strike. Anne is a British Paralympic wheelchair racer and is one of a small number of black females that sit on a British sport board. She is currently a member of the UK Athletics Board and has been since December 2014 and is also a non-executive director on the British Paralympian Board. Born in Kenya and fortuitously given Olympia as her middle name, Anne contracted polio at the age of two, resulting in a later diagnosis of below T7 paralysis. After completing A-levels and graduating from Moy University with a Bachelor of Education degree, Anne taught at Machakos Technical College in Kenya before meeting her future husband, which led her on to Britain, motherhood, wheelchair racing, disability advocacy and charity work. After the birth of her son, she took up wheelchair racing and in 2004, Anne became the first wheelchair racer from sub-Saharan Africa to compete at the Paralympics when she represented Kenya. She has since competed numerous times for Great Britain, and although narrowly missed out on a place in the London 2012 Paralympics, she was a torchbearer, carrying the flame past London Zoo. Her autobiography, In My Dreams I Dance, was published in 2010. And as the first Goodwill Ambassador for Action on Disability and Development, she successfully supported the Campaigning for Nations to ratify the UN Convention on the Rights and Dignity of Persons with Disabilities. She's founded the Olympia Wafula Foundation, which among many things works to sensitise communities through disability advocacy and provides educational scholarships and mobility aids. In the summer of 2013, Anne became the first disabled person in Europe to complete the Tough Mudder Challenge. And as part of Black History Month in 2020, Anne spoke to ITV, touching on the point that when she was in Africa, she only had to fight the fact she was disabled and female. When she moved to Britain, she found the colour of her skin was added to this. So Anne, where to begin? Mother, wife, athlete, teacher, campaigner, advocate, founder, board member, author, ambassador, amongst other things. I'm intrigued. How would you describe yourself? Oh, do you know, you know, Catherine, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, we might as well just pack and go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know how to describe myself. Um, I just love life and uh, Maybe I'll describe myself as somebody who takes, uh, you know, one day at a time, try to be the best person I can be. One thing that I sort of started with was the fact that you're on you're on sports boards. And, you know, there's still a very small minority, especially of black females that are on boards across all the different sports. We've talked about diversity in, in lots of different areas and how important it is that there's a diversity across all aspects of life, especially in sport for us. How have you found your roles on this? Let's start with boards, first of all. Have there been any sort of assumptions made or challenges you faced in the time? Our first challenges as not just female and not just as disabled, um, but also as a black woman. But, but I think the most interesting thing is I count myself really privileged because I have got that opportunity. If it wasn't for the opportunity then we wouldn't even be sat here having this uh, discussion today. Maybe one big challenge is uh, definitely being a minority, but also not just having that seat, but also having a voice, you know, because there's one thing when you are given a seat on a board and there's another thing when you have a voice that is loud enough to be heard. Those are some of the things that we are constantly battling with, you know, where you really want to 
to, to make a change. You want to make a difference. You just don't want to be a number. And and to, to, to be honest, um, if you sit on a board and you don't, or your voice is not heard, then you just become a statistic. Uh, and I think to me, that is one thing I battle with. I do not just want to be a, st a statistic. I want to, you know, I want to add value. <laughs> and what was it? What was it that made you feel that you wanted your voice to be heard at board level? Was that something that you wanted to do yourself, or were you encouraged to do it? Or what made you think that was a good platform for you? I was lucky because I was encouraged. You know, I was encouraged to to come on the board um, with the former uh, UK Athletics Chair Ed Warner. Um, Edwana encouraged me and said, um, he actually said, Anne, we feel that you've got a place, there's a space for you, you know, on this table, and we want to hear what you've got to say. And that excited me uh, because I just realized that a door had been opened for me and, you know, the rest was up to me how I influenced the board, really. And, you know, Catherine, as soon as I came on the board after some months, I realized that as a woman, I did not just want to adopt to the, you know, to the energy in the room. You know, I wanted to be that woman that will influence the energy in the room. Because sometimes, uh, you know, women, we think differently. You know, we, we think differently. And that's why boards that are so, are so productive are boards that have, women sitting around the table. So I wasn't going to take myself for granted. I did not want to look, you know, uh, to look down uh, upon myself because I was a disabled black, uh, black woman. No, I was like, no, I really want to influence the energy in the room. And it, it was a challenge, you know, at, at the start, because I was trying to find my way around, you know, to understand it uh, also to, to try to try and understand uh, the personalities around the table how did these uh, human beings function? You know, what made them tick? What language was I was 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 I going to use to really make them listen? And that took a little bit of time. I sort of found if you've never spent a lot of time in a boardroom um, or are acquainted with boards, there can be a bit of a mystique about what happens in a boardroom or you know what the board is like and. So when you come into it for the first time, it it you know, there's this element of it's like starting anything for new. Where do I fit in? What do I do? What's my role? You know, what's this going to be like? How do you think that's important to be different when you come into a boardroom and, and add add a different value that's maybe not there before? I don't want to say that I am now used to being a minority everywhere I go, <laughs> apart from when I go to Africa. You know, when we talk about being in the boardroom, when you are the minority or when you sort of when you are the different one you bring a different perspective and it may be really challenging for the people who've done this for years you know to sort of like really understand where you're coming from and you know and sometimes the macho people will want to challenge you they're like well it's not that we we don't want to listen to your ideas but you know it's because we've done this for a long time and this is not how boards are run you know we can't go and do that and do you know what? Sometimes I feel like telling them, no, it's not about that. It's, you know, boards are supposed to be dynamic, not, you know, not static. So therefore you sort of want to bring new energy, you know, to, to, the, to, to the way of thinking, uh, to the way of uh, decision making. You know, you want to influence uh, the conversation. And, uh, and I think as women, we are really good at doing that. And the one of the one of the big things probably within sports and sports governance is the governance code that brought in you know there have to be terms on sports board and a and a kind of natural rotation of the people sitting around the board table, um, and I think with that we've we've seen that really has helped um, diversity in all aspects grow across at board level. Have you in the time you've sat on boards have you seen a difference? I think boards are changing. Uh, boards are changing and people are now embracing, you know, the, you know, the, the code of governance, you know, that is really uh, driving um, every board, how they, you know, how they recruit um, and then two, how they empower and also how they sort of uh, um, really make sure that representation is, uh, is achieved. You know, because to me, really, 
I think sometimes we sort of want to talk about representation, and when you follow what the uh, the the code of governance is, is is telling everyone, representation is very good. But what matters is not just you know maybe from the bottom, but it's how we keep painting the pyramid, if you know what I mean. Because at, you know the funny thing is when you look at this pyramid. You know, at the bottom, it sort of like looks really nice and colorful and, you know, stuff like that. And then as we start to go up the pyramid, it starts to fade and it fades, fades, fades. And by the time we are getting to the board, we find that it's predominantly one color with a little bit of shades here and there. And I think that's when we sort of start to ask, you know, uh, we, we start to ask ourselves a, a question. What is it that gets lost in between? what happens when this pyramid gets to a certain level? I think maybe these are some of the questions that people should be asking themselves in boardrooms. What is it that we are we are not doing right? What would you say? There's people listening thinking, you know, I don't know if the boardroom's really for me. I don't know if I'd belong there. I don't really necessarily see myself represented. I don't think I'd like that. I don't know if I'd want that. How? What would you say to encourage more people to think maybe that's an opportunity they could look into or take up? I think we need to start empowering people from the very bottom, you know, the bottom of the pyramid. We need to start saying to them that, do you know what? You are the leaders of tomorrow. You are the governors of tomorrow. You know, so the future really depends on you. You know, Catherine, the problem is that we have people who want to be at the top forever. You want to get to a certain level, you know, at the top and you want to be buried there. <laughs> so there's no making space for the young one or there's no making space for the new blood. And and sometimes you'll see people just um, moving from one board to another, you know, and stuff like that. And you're like, so when does so-and-so get an opportunity? Sometimes you go out to shop for certain skills and you may not really find those skills out there. So what do you do? Do you dismiss a particular group of people because you haven't been able to find the skills you are looking for in them. No, I think to me, what I would encourage them to do is you need to start creating systems or put systems in place that can nurture these people. When quotas were introduced, that was a very good thing. But what I know is, for example, the men were like, oh, do you know, it's not that we don't want to bring the women in the boardroom, you know, blah, blah. It's just that there aren't many out there who are qualified to hold these positions. And I'm like, this would have been believed maybe when I was growing up, not in this century, you know? People who don't want to create change or people who don't want to embrace change, people who don't want to open doors to these new people, you know, or give them seats on the table or around the table, will always find an excuse. And it's how we try to change, you know, the, the narrative. But, you know, having said that, I think we are on the right track, um, Catherine, we, we are on the right track. And it makes complete sense. You said the more, you know, the wider group of people you can you can look at and pull from for whether it's board level or whether it's competing in, in sporting competitions, surely the, the better the better that field is, the more diverse that field is, the better chance we're gonna have success at every level. That could just be really exciting if you felt you could reduce the barriers in, in anyone's ambitions. Yeah, because you're so right. I'll give you an example. When I said when I said when I took up wheelchair racing, and I went to Athens, you know, for you know my first Paralympics, you know, the African nations were like, "How does she get to do this sport that is not even for an African person?" You know, and she's a woman for God's sake, and she's doing wheelchair racing. How do you get to do it? And I just realized that. I had a duty to tell my African people that mm -mm, sport is an equalizer. <laughs> you know, sport is a universal language that we all can speak, but we need the opportunity, to, you know, to you know to 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 do that. I think sometimes uh, as a people we limit ourselves. No, that is not for me. Boardroom is not for me. I am a woman. You know, I am a woman of color, or I have a disability, so therefore cannot do that. And then the problem with uh, when 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 we limit ourselves, we be, we become grumblers. It's like you sit on the sidelines and pass judgment and grumble. I think the best thing is like challenge yourself, put yourself forward.
for these roles. When there are adverts, you know, for board members, go for it. Uh, you know, leadership role, go for it. We need to start challenging the dynamics of how things are going and start knocking on people's doors. You know, it's like bang on those doors. It's just like, hey, I am here. I want an opportunity. I saw a tweet you put out because it was recently um, International Wheelchair Day as well. And, uh, you know, you said, happy International Wheelchair Day. My wheelchair has empowered me, give me independence, mobility, dignity, opportunity. And you're talking about, you know, you could sit and grumble that, you know, I'm in a wheelchair or you could, your attitude is actually what it's given me and what you've helped create is very, very positive. And I think that, you know, it can be difficult for people to shift into that really positive mindset, but it's kind of incredible what's possible when you do it. It's so easy for us to dwell on on, on the negatives, um, uh, Catherine, you know, when I was an athlete, I learned so many positives. I am so grateful for finding sport because sport has just really challenged and improved my mindset. I have learned to, to, to turn all those negatives into positives. That is what sport teaches us. When I was in Africa without a wheelchair, I would crawl on my hands and knees because I can't walk at all. And, uh, you know, after I got uh, my disability, it took several years and I was rehabilitated. I was fitted with the leg braces and, the, and, and, and crutches. And even to walk 50 meters, just 50 meters, I would take something like half an hour to do that, you know. So when I got my first chair, I remember I was like, oh, I can actually wheel myself. I'm not sort of just falling down, you know, all the time. It gave me some kind of dignity, you know. It it took some kind of shame away from me because then I knew I could sort of walk side by side with you and we could get to the same place, you know, at the same time. And, and that that was a beautiful thing. And I think to me, when I look at my wheelchair, how, you know, how my wheelchair empowered me, I can sort of almost equate it with what sport does, you know, to people. And that's why sport is such a powerful catalyst for so many things. We can use sport to, you know, to build character, you know, to rehabilitate people, uh, to create champions, to create to create household names, you know, to challenge um, uh, policymakers and help policymakers. So sport is quite, quite, quite powerful. And as a sports person or as, as a sportswoman, I know that my diverse views, you know, when, when, when we bring all these views together in a, in a boardroom, they generate creative ideas. I think even men around the room just realize that, oh my goodness, we've got a genius amongst us because then it's like, we help them solve problems in a very, very good way. If you speak to men, actually, they'll tell you that the decision-making is improved when there's a woman or when there's, you know, a woman's voice, you know, around that table. So, and we also make people learn to challenge themselves. And I think when they're coming to board meetings, they are really well prepared because they, they probably know, oh, God, there's that woman who will really want to know a, B, Z, and know everything, you know, from step one to, you know, to, you know, to the next step. And th that is a good thing. Any board that is not diverse, they're just missing out on a lot. Did you have female role models when you were growing up? Did you have people you looked up to and admired and who influenced you? Part of my, most of my young years were spent in Africa. The books that I got to read were Mills and Boons. So that just tells you already <laughs> what was happening <laughs> to me when I was growing up. I, I was thirsty. You know, I wanted knowledge, but it was a challenge. I would watch the television, I would read the newspapers, and, you know, I knew about um, our big uh, sporting stars from, you know, from Kenya, long-distance runners. But that was so far from me. Here, I mean, I was a disabled woman. I couldn't go and do anything like that because just don't forget, Catherine, when I was growing up, I was that girl who was excluded in physical education. So on, when my friends were busy playing uh, or taking part in uh, PE, physical education or any sporting activities, I sat on the sidelines and I held their books and their jumpers, you know. So I did not have the female role models. I never saw anybody that looked like me. It's later when I got to, you know, when I started reading 
then I started watching uh, films like um, The Color Purple. It, it sort of really made me look at these black women and I was like, wow, every woman that I knew who was disabled was struggling, stigmatized, ostracized uh, person. So we, we were kind of in the same boat, you know, and this is a board that I wanted to jump off. I was like, no, I don't want to be here, you know, because I just didn't feel comfortable. I, I did not. I believe that was not my space. And when I became a Paralympian, it sort of gave me a platform. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing, uh, Catherine, is that it's taken me a long time to learn how to speak. And now that I've found a voice, I don't want to be silenced, if you know what I mean. I know how difficult it is as a woman you know, to be heard, how difficult it is as a woman to hold big offices, you know, or to, 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 to be in certain position, you know, uh, of power. And it's more difficult for a, a woman who is disabled and a woman who is black. But what I always say to people is really the only difference or, or the only thing that stands between me and maybe a white woman who doesn't have a disability and who doesn't have all these things against them is opportunity. Now, the priority, maybe we start to ask people around, especially in this, the sporting sector, how do we create opportunities for such people, you know, people who look like me? How, how do we go about creating opportunities for them? I think what's incredible is you found your voice and it, it speaks so strongly and so powerfully and so eloquently on so many really important subjects. You know, you alone make a huge difference. I mean, we haven't really touched much at all, but on the incredible work you've done so many different charities as well. And that's an incredible place to, to make big differences. But has it really been important to you to then make sure you are helping others to have opportunities as well? Yeah. If you're not happy uh, of a... Uh of the person that you are then do something about it you know if you're not happy the way things are being governed then do something about it and uh, i think to me what i've learned to do is to ask the right question and sort of like ask the right people um and uh, i'm so careful not to be just a noisy symbol you know or not knowing your space because that will be actually be a little bit demeaning or patronizing but I think what it is, it's about wanting change. Do you just want to be behind closed doors and complain because no one is going to hear you? Or do you want to open that door, go out and, you know, call it the way it is? Everyone has a voice, Catherine. The only problem is that some people's voices are very silent. I feel like um, sometimes I want to help amplify those voices. I'm glad that I'm doing that on a sporting board, which, which is a privilege, you know, I know it, take, it, it takes a lot of work, you know, it takes a lot of work to do that. And sometimes, you know, you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm just going to give up because I don't feel like I'm really making an impact. But I think if you ask my uh, my board colleagues, they'll probably say to you, sometimes Anne sounds like a stack record. And you know what I say to them, Catherine? I'm like, yes, I'm going to be a stack record until you say, okay, yeah, let's do it now because we are just fed up of hearing this, you know. So don't be embarrassed how you sound if you sound like a stack record so be it you know let them hear hear your voice i love it um last last question for me Anne. um you have taken on so many incredible challenges and and continue to do and you really are making an incredible impact and you are you are helping change for the better which is just stunning i'm just interested of all the different challenges you've taken on how tough was the Tough Mudder? Oh, do you know, to be honest, I think Tough Mudder, it wasn't a good decision. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what, um, Catherine, they said, let's go and, you know, let's go and attempt <laughs> this obstacle course. And I was like, how far is it? They said it's 12 miles with some obstacle, you know, challenges here and there. And I was like, oh, 12 miles. How long do I do that in my racing chair? 12 miles is about maybe one hour. It took me seven hours. Wow. It was really challenging. But do you know why I did it, Catherine? And we were raising awareness of how difficult it is to live with a disability in the developing nation. And also we wanted people in, the, in these developing nations, uh, the disabled people, to have access to sporting activities. And we were like, yeah, let's do something crazy. 
you know, and we did it. <laughs> <laughs> but you slept for days. Yeah. It's been an absolute joy. To, I could talk to you all day. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's, it's been a pleasure. This is Medals and More. I'm Catherine Granger. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome. And there is so much more in earlier episodes too. For example, as we're celebrating International Women's Day, you could go back and listen to Elise Christie, Donna Fraser, Tanny Gray Thompson, or Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh, to name just a few. Download and subscribe, and you won't miss a moment. My next guest on this International Women's Day episode has been instrumental in the organisation of many massive sporting events in the United Kingdom. From leading the team that delivered the highly successful Rugby League World Cup in 2013, to being the managing director of the organising committee for the World Athletics Championship in 2017. She's also been a member of the UK Sport Major Events Panel since 2013, and has previously worked at Deloitte, and is now the chief exec of the All England Club. Welcome, Sally Bolton. And as I mentioned, you've had an incredible variety of roles so far, all highly influential in sport. So there is one thing I want to ask first, and it's in an article you did when you were first announced as the new chief exec of the All England Club. An article opened with describing you as looking like a tennis player. You said you were never very good at sport and were more into drama at school. Is this true? This is, I'm afraid, true. I have no credible personal best to share with anybody in any sport. I was a sort of enthusiastic trier of all sports, but I think quite soon had the realisation that I really wasn't particularly good at anything. And drama was my first love at school. I, I'm, look, I wasn't that good at that either, but I was slightly better and, and it was a real passion. Although I think what I would say is, I've purposely carried on in life trying to learn new skills and I actually learned to row about four years ago just in the spirit of learning something new and if there's sports you haven't tried you actually don't know whether you're good or not and it turns out I wasn't very good at that either but I did really enjoy it. (laughs) So eternal learner which is good but why am I now talking to you as the chief executive of Wimbledon rather than chief executive of the National Theatre? It's a really good question. I think I realised that I wasn't quite good enough at drama to make a career of it, I think, is is the realisation. And so I completely pivoted and was thinking about a career in business and then in, in public relations, which is the degree I took. And during that time, I suppose I, I arrived on the scene at a good point in the evolution of the sports industry, where the industry was growing and starting to look for different types of professions to work in it. And I saw that there was a possibility to work in sport, which I've always been passionate about and loved, but possibly never thought there was a place for me because I wasn't particularly sporty. And so the door was opened, if you like. And then I think as my careers developed, I very much felt the connection between sport and theatre in terms of putting on a show. I think major events are putting on a show effectively. And so all the thrills of that kind of the sense of when the curtain goes up, all of that is still really relevant in delivering delivering sports events. It's true. And to be honest, as an athlete, you always talk about performance. So there are huge similarities of that moment of delivery, I suppose. When you became the chief executive of Wimbledon most recently, it was heralded because you were the first ever female. And often sports get described as quite a male-dominated industry. Is that something you recognise and are aware of? And are you aware of being female in, in a male world? Or is that something you don't see now? I think all of my career, I've I've often been the only woman in the room. And I think in many ways, you just get used to that over time. And you just then after a point become become a little bit blind to it it's just always you know professionally that's always been the case for me so maybe I've just never known any different I think now I'm a bit more focused on on it because I think about how the industry should be changing rather than necessarily for myself being the only woman in the room I'm much more interested in how it's changed because it's not the case anymore it is not the case that I'm the only woman in the room quite often there's still a lot more to do but it is a very different place than it was. And, you know, I would love I would love us to get to a point where where the headline isn't about your gender when you're appointed to any role. But that's probably a slightly different conversation. And if you've seen a lot of change in the time you've worked in sport, when you're saying you're quite interested in how those changes have come about, what are your reflections on 
how those changes have been made so far? I think my reflections would be sort of when I think about what's happened with the the governance code is a great example of sometimes you need some momentum to get the wheel turning. And once the wheel starts turning and you start seeing more women arriving into leadership roles in sport, sport realises that there's an awful lot of value in that. And then you start to see some greater momentum. And I think so my reflections on the period I've worked in sport is that more and more women have come into into the industry a little bit because the industry has become more professionalised in the broadest possible sense. You know, we now need outstanding marketing professionals, outstanding communications professionals, as well as performance professionals. So there's more different types of opportunities to, to be involved in the industry. And I think as we've seen more women around, I think people have seen more value. And therefore, we've got this kind of this sense of momentum now that I think, you know, times are changing for the positive. But as I say, we've still got we've still got a way to go yet. With your career, if you're looking back, where would you say you've sort of had the biggest challenges, whether because of gender or whether because of not having sport as your original sort of background? What would you say the challenges you've faced have been? People ask me this a lot in sense of in the sense of gender, you know, have you faced discrimination? And I I can honestly say maybe maybe because I've chosen to be blind to it, I can't point to any stage at which I've felt I've been discriminated against because of my gender. I've definitely had periods where there's been a bit of slightly patronising behaviour, but actually I've never bothered too much about that on the basis that I think, well, if people are underestimating your ability, it's not always a bad place to be because you have an opportunity to prove them wrong. And so so in terms of challenges, I've never I've never felt overt sexism in that way. I suppose to your point about sportiness, I've definitely faced some challenges around credibility on the field of play and what that means for your ability in, in the in the boardroom or, or sat behind a desk. You know, quite often in certain sports I've worked in, there's sort of credibility conversations around, well, what was your sport? Well, not really anything. And, and, you know, can you be credible working in sport if you're not talented at it? You know, I'm proof that you can. But there is no doubt that there is still a sense that to be successful, it's very helpful if you have been an athlete. And in a lot of roles, that's definitely the case. But of course, that is yet another barrier to entry to high quality men or women to an industry that needs a really diverse range of talents. And so, I'd be really keen for that sort of assumption or expectation to just simply not be there. It's relevant for some roles, but just not for others. And how would you build your confidence in that? If you're meeting that, whatever the reason people are doubting your credibility, how do you how do you create confidence for yourself to overcome those sort of barriers? I mean, it definitely gets easier as you get older and more experienced, because I think you feel a bit less sensitive about it. I think you just have to demonstrate your credentials and your knowledge and understanding of a sport. And I think you don't need to have played it at a high level to be to understand the issues and be credible. And of course, a lot of what I've done in sport has been around delivering major events. And of course, the skills you need to do that are not the same skills as, you know, playing a sport well. I've worked hard at trying to understand what drives athletes and what they need out of an event and an environment. And I think that's been, I think, demonstrating a desire to really get under the skin of it and understand it, not not just because you've done it yourself, but because you've purposefully gone in there and talked to people and tried to understand it. I feel very firmly that back to the idea of sort of theatre and sport, that as an event delivery, you're creating a stage for the athletes to perform at their very best. And that's what creates this amazing um, amazing spectacle for people to enjoy and so it's critically important that there's a really clear focus on what athletes need in that environment in order to perform at their best and I, and I don't know that you need to have competed to necessarily know what that is you just need to be open to to talking a lot and understanding. I think with all of us a lot of the confidence comes from the doing you get as you get more experience and have been through more you you can build your own confidence but when you started off, when you were early in your career, when you were young in new positions, did you have anyone around you who helped or supported or mentored or did you use other people to, to help you get going at the very beginning? I did. Interestingly, though, there there not very many women at that point available for, for that kind of support, if you like. 
So when when I was sort of thinking about this conversation, I was trying to reflect back to really early in my career, what examples of female leadership existed that I could see and touch and feel was relevant to me. And I remembered back to 95 when I first started work and a lady called Kath Hetherington had been made the president of the Rugby Football League that year. And she was the first female president of the RFL. And she had actually been the first female councillor of the RFL before that. And she was this phenomenal character, hugely credible, enormously well respected in a completely male environment amongst the, amongst the Rugby League Council at that point in time. And, and so her gender was completely irrelevant. And she was a very forthright, very composed, very committed individual. And I, I did spend quite a bit of time with her in my first role. And so if I think about sort of women of stature and leadership at that time, she was the obvious kind of standout. And beyond that, you know, it's been it's been men who have given me opportunity, have mentored me and supported me. I just I, it doesn't have to be women supporting women. You know, it often frustrates me when we have conferences in sport talking about increasing gender equality in, in the sports industry. And often it's a room full of mostly women talking about it. Well, what we really need is men in the industry believing in gender equality and believing we need more women in the industry to really make a difference. And, and my experience is certainly that the people who've given me the most support, the greatest opportunities and, and, and mentoring have been a group of men. Do you feel now in the position you're in, do you feel any responsibility to the next wave of people coming in, whether it's male or female, to help and support and open doors? Because I think everyone will feel there are some challenges or barriers or that feeling of, as you said, maybe this isn't for me. Do I fit in here? Do you feel as you're in a very strong leadership position now, a responsibility to help others? I think so, definitely. I mean, the whole role model thing definitely sort of sat quite uncomfortably with me for a period of time. But I now appreciate it's, it's part of the part of the job. I mean, it adds an extra layer of pressure. Of course, I want to be the best chief executive that I can be in this role. But the fact that it, I'm the first female chief executive just sort of adds that extra dimension of pressure to, to do a good job for, for women, if you like. And I think when I reflect back on my sort of formative years, role models were important and there weren't all that many in sport. And so so reluctantly... I accept that it's an important part of the role. And then on a practical level, I think I think there is a degree of responsibility to spot talent and to help that talent. And so uh, so I so I try and do that as much as I can. And I in our organisation, particularly, I'm hugely excited about the amount of talent we've got in that kind of level below the very senior leadership. And I think about the sort of next few years for the organisation. And it really excites me in terms of gender equality. But but more broadly than that, just the quality of what we've got in, in both genders. How tough has the last year been in, in a new role and then in a year unlike anything else we've seen because of the pandemic? Well, it's definitely been interesting. I was offered and accepted the, the role in December 2019. And of course, the role I accepted definitely different to, to the one that I then took over on the 1st of August. I mean, it's, it's hard, isn't it? I think you will only really have a sense of what this period felt like and looked like when we have a chance to look back on this period. Right now, we're all in it and we're all doing the best that we can. And we're all managing enormous levels of uncertainty, learning new things about ourselves and our organisation every day. And mostly that is a really exciting leadership challenge. You know, some days you, I know everyone will feel the same. You just you just sick of it. But mostly I quite I feel quite energized about the opportunity to have to think differently about about everything. I think it it will give us all great opportunity in the future to have flexed our ability to think differently and proven to ourselves what's possible. You know, I think about our organization. We effectively moved majority to remote working effectively overnight, as did many organizations. And if you had asked us if that would be possible six, nine months before it happened, we would have probably said, no, that's going to take six months to plan. But actually, we proved we could do it. And I think it, in some respects, gives you a, a strong sense of confidence about what's possible when you need to. There is a sense of hopefully optimism going forward. And and there will be lessons that we'll take from this moving on. Have you found anything about yourself, your style of doing things, 
that you think you will change because of this experience? I think what I've learned is something I, I knew anyway. What I love about working and about my job are the people I work with. And whilst I've spent lots of time sitting in front of a screen with a lot of them, you know, haven't seen a lot of them for a while. And I, and I really miss that. And so I suppose it's a really good reminder of the reasons why you're excited to get out of bed and go to work in the morning. If indeed you ever took those things for granted, I think it's just a reminder of what's really important. I think for me, it's a reminder that the sense of place that is Wimbledon is important too. You know, I've really, really missed going to the grounds every day and the buzz you get just walking through the gates that I think just really special. It's part of, it's, part, it's so much part of that organisation, so much part of everybody's life that works there. Really, really miss that. But, you know, as you say, reasons to be optimistic. It feels like we're, we're on our way out of this, but it certainly has focused minds on, I think, for me anyway, what's really important in my working life. What do you think it is about sport, whether we work in it, whether we're watching it, whether taking part in it? What is it that drew you to sport? What is it that makes sport so compelling for so many people? I mean, it's it's an alchemy of lots of things, I think, particularly particularly live sport. I suppose the best way to, for me to think about that when it all comes together was that was the summer of 2019, where we had the Cricket World Cup and we had the men's final at the championships happening at the same time. And both of those events went down to the wire. The way in which whether you were in either of those stadiums or on social media or watching on TV, that sense of not knowing the outcome and being on the edge of your seat, like, I mean, like no drama could do for you. And the, the sense of being bought in and, and more than anything, that shared experience, the sense that everybody was in it with you, feeling the same things you were feeling, that kind of roller coaster of emotions. I just don't think there's very many other types of things that can give you that kind of range of emotions and that kind of engagement that completely draws you in. I think I think it's pretty unique, but it's but it's an alchemy of of things I think that creates that. Sport at its very best is is the greatest theatre in the purest sense of the word. I think you could you can have. Because obviously all your time right now, understandably, is taken up with tennis. You're a member of the UK Sport Board. Why was it that you wanted to join that? Why did you want to add to your workload and join something a little bit different? I mean, the obvious answer is I'm passionate about sport and excited about what this nation has achieved and is capable of achieving in, in Olympic and Paralympic sport. And so the opportunity to be part of shaping that for the future and maintaining that reputation and, and, and quality was just really exciting. For me, it was an opportunity to join a really high performing board and to test and challenge myself to develop some new skills. Um, it's the first time I've formally sat on a board as a, as a board member versus an executive reporting to a board. So, so it was a combination, really. I wanted to get some board experience and I just couldn't think of anywhere I would rather be doing that than an environment where I, I passionately care about what the organisation is trying to achieve. And we're speaking to different people today and one thing that's coming through is how important it is for people to feel they are making an impact or making a difference. How much does that drive you, that feeling of, well, I don't know whether it's responsibility or duty or feeling, you know, the work is worthwhile. How much does that sit behind the choices you've made? A lot. I mean, very significantly. I think one of the things that I have learned in the latter period of my career is that one of the most important things for me is that in any role, whether that's a board role or or an executive role, is that the values of the organisation match my own and that there's the same sort of sense of a similar purpose, because that is the thing that really gets you out of bed in the morning alongside the people you work with. But that's all part of that sense of a purpose and a shared purpose. That is the difference between in my mind anyway, earning a living and, and, and having a vocation and a real passion for, for what it is that you do. I think that's been brought home even more so in the last year to 18 months. But as I've got older, it's been very apparent that that is really important. And I think increasingly for people, as they have different options as a career, thinking about what's going to really motivate you and make you happy. I mean, you're at work from a lot of hours a day. And so finding something that 
that you genuinely are passionate about is a real privilege. So I think we often talk and if you talk to young people it's about finding what your passion is and if you can do it following that passion wherever it leads you. For people who don't know what their passion is or are struggling to find a passion what would you say? It's a great question. Um, I would say try try out different things you know maybe going back to what we were talking about before uh, if you'd have asked me at 16 I'd have said look my passion's theatre that's what I want to do and look here I am now feeling like I have a a role in a sort of theatrical performance but that's not what you know that's not how I would have defined it back then so I would probably say keep an open mind about when you think about what you're passionate about keep your mind open about the ways in which that can manifest itself because it might not always be quite as obvious as it seems. Would you say you've made mistakes along the way? Some but but I'm a real believer I'm a really big believer in everything being a learning experience so I'm sure you could characterize some things as mistakes but but I don't think I ever really think that you know there's been really difficult points in my career and there's nothing I wish I hadn't done if I had my time again I'd I'd do all of it again yeah I suppose it's how you look at things I would probably say most of the mistakes were brilliant learning experiences and might have been a point where I took a different fork in the road and actually and actually it's been a great fork in the road and I've ended up somewhere amazing and so I think you just got to have a sort of positive attitude towards things that don't go exactly as you might have hoped. If you've got that natural instinct to learn how much do you think different sports can learn from each other or should wider than that different sectors of society learn from each other? I think sports can definitely learn from each other. The best example of my career is that there are a lot of things that are similar when you look properly rather than a lot of things that are very different between sports. So I think there is definitely an opportunity for sports to learn more from each other. I think sport and particularly the sort of high performance system has diversity generally and gender equality has a has a bit to teach businesses you know if you sort of think about it in its purest sense the aim of a system is to find the very best talent and then to create an environment where that talent can perform at its very best and and to place around that that raw talent the the means and the support to to enable the very best to come forward because if you think about that in the context of an organization and its employees why would any organization not want to go and find the very best talent and then create an environment where that talent can perform at its very best and so so why would an organization believe that the best talent is always male or when they or when they generate that talent why they wouldn't create an environment in which in which women can flourish and and in, in whatever way you need to adjust the way you work to think about that because that's in the best interest of the business it's just good business sense and I think in that respect, that kind of purity of purpose in, in performance sport can teach business something. You know, it should be gender blind if you're really in pursuit of outstanding people and outstanding performance. And on the gender issue, how far has sport still got to go? I think we've still got a, a bit of a way to go. And I sort of think about about the different parts of the workforce in sport and particularly focusing on certain areas, you, know, you look at the, the, the gender diversity of our athlete cohort, but then you look at, for example, the, the gender diversity in our coaching workforce, there's a kind of gap there which doesn't make sense if many athletes subsequently then go on to coaching. What you know, what's happening in that what's happening in that gap? Obviously, UK sports focusing in on that area, we've got the coaching leadership programme focused particularly on females. And I think it's a good example of where sometimes you have to make some specific interventions to get that virtuous circle running. But it's a really good example of of needing to really understand why that gap exists before you can do something about it. So we've come an awful long way, but we've still got plenty more we can do. Currently in the month of International Women's Day, do you feel it's important to mark the occasion? Definitely. I was sort of reflecting this morning about depressingly about my age and the sort of generational shifts. The Sex Discrimination Act only came in the year after I was born. And when you really think about what that meant for my mum, who's not old, but that's in one generation, that the shift in attitudes and the way society's changed in that one generation, it has been pretty exceptional, but it's a good example of how 
we aren't quite there yet. A lot is still to change. And there certainly are plenty of countries around the world where where there is a lot more work to do. And so the celebration of this internationally continues to be really important. And if we were to meet again in 10 years time to celebrate International Women's Day then, what would you hope we'd be talking about at that point? I would love to not be talking about the fact that that as the first female chief executive of the All-In Club, that's the headline. You know, I'd love the headline never, at that point, I would love there never to be a headline about someone's gender because it's just irrelevant. And I suppose I'd love to be talking about a, a genuine sense of boys and girls growing up today feeling like all and every opportunity is available to both of them. So that girls are growing up really firmly believing that they can lead organisations and be the primary breadwinner in their household. And boys are growing up really believing that they can be the primary childcare provider and don't have the overriding sense of a responsibility to provide for their family. And that's their role. That, they're just the idea that boys and girls grow up having every possible option available to them, irrespective of their gender. But, you know, 10 years is a long time, but it, but it's also not a long time. So uh, I look forward to having that conversation in 10 years, Catherine. What one piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I would probably say particularly in the context of the sort of gender piece I would probably say a believe in yourself more but that's a really easy thing to say very difficult thing to do and the other thing would be you don't need to be tougher than everybody else to succeed I think I certainly felt that when I you know in the younger years of my career I felt that I had to be tougher than everybody else and to prove that I was tougher than everybody else And it's not really sustainable and it actually doesn't really achieve all of the things that you would want to achieve. I think what I've learned as I've got a bit older is the kind of power of vulnerability, particularly as a leader, and just how much that can help you achieve. If you'd said to me at 23, you know, being vulnerable is good, you know, showing that you don't know the answers. I I think I would have found that quite hard to, to get my head around because I was busy being tough. And so that would probably be the advice I give. You don't have to be the toughest person in the room. That's perfect. Great. International Women's Day is a time to celebrate, a chance to reflect and an opportunity to learn. To learn about women past and present, from sport and across all sectors of our society. Women who are game changers, trailblazers, history makers, whether on international influential platforms or inspirational family members. It's a timely reminder that all of us have within us the means to make a difference. We just have to choose what we want that difference to be. This is Medals and More, the podcast getting you behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. I'm Catherine Granger. Download and subscribe and you won't miss a moment.